Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm an experienced registered yoga teacher with over 15 years of teaching experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is this, to help you develop into a purpose-driven, confident yoga teacher, one who truly understands anatomy and how to share it clearly and confidently so that you can help your students learn and as a result, grow your impact and connection. I strongly support and value the uniqueness of all individuals and provide a safe community where diversity is embraced. Through my mentorship and signature program called the Blueprint Learning Program, I help yoga teachers build their skills in the area of learning anatomy, and along with that, help them learn important business skills and personal development ways of being that will transform them into purpose-driven teachers who make a big impact. On the podcast here, you'll get a blend of both anatomy learning, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. For more information and to get on the wait list for any of my programs, see my website, barebonesyoga.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 120. So I am here recording this here from my home uh, in Boston on March 8th. And I want to start out by saying this is a really exciting day for me because today is the day I go pick up my rescue dog, Coco. Uh, for any of you who know me or have been following my social media posts, you know, over the years, I've had uh, a wonderful yellow lab. Uh, her name was Bailey Rose. And she died in 2015 of natural causes. She had a, a long life. She lived to be 15 and a half years old. She was my third yellow lab. And, um, and when she died, I moved to an apartment in the back bay of Boston from Charlestown to probably the only apartment complex or, or brownstone um, that didn't allow dogs. And Initially, it was okay because I really wasn't ready to have another dog and my heart was just broken. Um, but over the years, I really thought it was really the one piece missing in my life that I wanted to fill. But I couldn't because I loved my apartment. My living situation was what it was. And um, for a number of reasons, I, I wasn't going to be able to change that. And then in December of last year, when things changed for uh, my partner, Ben, it became apparent very quickly that we were going to move in together and it was going to be uh, a scenario where I could have a dog. And so I talked with him about it pretty early on and long story short, we decided to get a rescue. And this is my first time getting a rescue dog. So we went through Forever Home New England uh, friends of ours have adopted a dog through that charity, through that organization, and we'd heard such good things. And the whole concept of rescuing a dog was just something that was just so important to me for a number of reasons. And so I talked to the um, foster uh, uh mother, foster dog mom, Lori in Arkansas, found out a little bit about how she got, uh, she calls him boy, we'll call him Coco. And I don't know if I had told you all this in an earlier episode, but I'll just quickly re reiterate or, or share it again, 
that um, she has a number of foster dogs. That's part of what she does in her life. Um, amazing, amazing person. And she had seen in January a post on Facebook that there were uh, puppies on the side of the road. And so she said to her husband, honey, we're going to have to go get them pups. Uh, and she said it in her accent, her Arkansas accent, which was amazing. And so they got in their truck, they went, they scooped up the puppies and, um, and that's how they became known uh, by the rescue organization up here in New England in Boston. And so the day that we got approved to be, uh, uh, to be able to adopt a dog, the next morning I got the email with his picture and uh, the person up here said, I really think you have to act quickly if you want this dog because it's going to go fast. And Coco is very unique looking. Um, he has, uh, he's black, but he has brown spots and he is a lab hound mix. So he has spots like, um, like a hound and it's not spots like you would think like a Dalmatian. It's more just like big patches of different coloring and they're placed so kind of perfectly on his face and on his body. He really um, is a beautiful, beautiful dog. So he's about four months old and we'll get him today at two. So I'm recording this podcast in the morning. Very, very excited. <laughs> and it's really hard actually to be focused. Um, however, I wanted to get to the podcast recording because I, I love to do podcasts weekly and keep, uh, keep you uh, in the loop about um, anatomy and, and keep you learning. And I think podcasts as a platform are such a great way to do it. I know every week I tune in to some of my favorite podcasts and I want to keep my commitment as much as I can to you all by re uh, recording weekly. So that's um, just a little personal note what's happening in my life. Um, just as an aside, if you want to follow along, I will post a couple pictures in my regular feed on, on Instagram, bare bones yoga. However, I'm going to uh, post a lot of pictures of Coco and his adventures on his own Instagram, which is Coco rescue pup, Coco rescue pup. So feel free to follow along his story, which really um, has already begun in the, the short four month life he's had. Um, however, it will really, really, really take off once um, he moves in with us today. So, uh, so that is that. So uh, I wanted to start out the episode today just covering a couple of general movement principles. And, you know, I, I think I've done this over the past couple of recordings. And the reason I like to do this is because it's really easy to get caught up in the nitty gritty. And I think the nitty gritty is, is where, you know, we need to go sometimes because that is often where the details lie that uh, we need to learn so that we really truly understand anatomy. However, it's also part of the learning to understand general movement principles. And, and when we have these general principles in mind, it gives us several um, overarching principles that we can apply to any scenario, to any class, to working with any student one-on-one. -on -one. And it really adds to the tools we have as yoga teachers to be able to share anatomy with our students and really help them. So I'm just gonna go over before I get into today's topic, which is going over um, key bones and joints of the body. I'm going to just share with you a couple of, or actually four general movement principles and I'll explain each one as we go along. So the first one is, um, is the following. A good general modification is to decrease the range of motion required for the involved joints. Okay, so you may be saying, what the heck 
is she talking about? <laughs> so let's break that down. So when we talk about modifications, and I know a lot of the questions I get are around how to modify a pose for somebody. Now, if you really think about that at the tactical level, there are hundreds of ways to modify poses and hundreds of poses. So that can make your head swim with, oh my gosh, do I really need to learn all those things? And how can I possibly know all the ways to modify? So this is again, a perfect example of how understanding a general movement principle gives you a general principle that you can then apply to any pose. And so it gives you much more freedom and ability to be able to help anybody in any pose because now you're just applying a general principle as an overlay on the particular situation at hand. So here, what the principle is saying or what the principle is, a good general modification is to decrease the range of motion required for the involved joints. So let's talk about what does range of motion mean? Range of motion is essentially the, it's really a clinical term to describe the movement a limb makes as it moves through space as a function of muscles acting upon a joint. Now, I'm really kind of laughing to myself because I did not look up the definition of range of motion. I know it from many, many years um, from starting out as a physical therapy student. Um, even though I didn't complete the PT program at BU, I went through three years of it and then decided I didn't want to be a physical therapist and got my undergrad degree in rehab counseling and went on to be a discharge planner at a hospital. However, that doesn't negate the three years of work I did in the PT undergrad program and range of motion is really central to what physical therapists do to assess movement. And so, you know, that whole idea of a joint, I'm sorry, a muscle is acting upon a joint to create movement of a limb. That is a central uh, understanding that you should have as a teacher rather than what many um, people might think, which is just that the limbs are moving it's really important that you understand how the limb is moving. Now, I haven't even gotten into the impact of nerves and the nervous system. That is intentional somewhat because I am trying to draw a pretty distinct perimeter around my conversation with you about anatomy so that you can really get a handle on the key pieces. Uh, that's one of the hallmarks of how I teach anatomy. I don't go down a lot of different rabbit holes and I really keep you focused on essential information so that you can really begin to absorb the information and begin to integrate it in your teaching. When you begin to do that, that's not only when your impact as a teacher goes up, it's also when your confidence goes up. And so many teachers tell me that they are not confident teaching and they directly tie it to their lack of understanding of anatomy. So having said that, know that of course, the brain and central nervous system, the spine, the nerves, going out to the periphery of the body, that is what is essentially creating the movement uh, by via the connection between the central nervous system and the muscle. However, for right now, let's focus on muscles act upon joints, joints create movement, limbs move. The way that they move or the space that they move through is measured as range of motion. So if I take my arm out to the side as in warrior two, and then lift it all the way up. So I'm reaching up to the sky. I'm moving my arm through a range of motion. If I can't get my arm past warrior two position because I have problems with my shoulder or I have pain, that would be described as limited range of motion. I have some limitation to the range of motion that the joint should be able to perform. 
all joints have a particular range of motion assigned to them. And that's kind of a, a baseline measurement that uh, physical therapists and physicians would use in order to determine if you have any kind of, of problem that's, that's at play. As yoga teachers, we see these kinds of problems all the time. We see people, let's say in warrior one, and we're wondering when we're saying reach to the sky, why aren't they reaching to the sky? You know, I, I can remember I had a student who came to my class a lot, a young, a young um, uh, male student. And every time we did warrior one, he would do cactus arms. And it was the kind of thing where over time, um, it just became apparent that was basically the range of motion he had in his shoulders. And I had chatted with him a little bit about it and I got a little bit of the backstory. Uh, the point is when you're looking at somebody and they're not quote unquote, doing what you want them to do, limited range of motion is potentially one of the factors at play. And limited range of motion has a lot of different sources. It could be a, a, a mechanical problem in terms of something with the structure of the joint. It could be a muscular issue, meaning the muscles that need to move in particular ways are limiting range of motion at that joint. It could be something with the fascia. It could be uh, something with a breakdown of the joint, like an arthritis type thing. Again, these all get into areas where you may be thinking, I don't know anything about these areas. And that is okay. Because again, in our professional role as yoga teachers, it is not for us to diagnose or treat. So that really allows us to focus on the movement and being able to speak to what is the movement we want people to do? And if they are challenged in doing that particular movement to give them suggestions to modify it. So that brings me back to this particular principle, general principle. The easiest way, a good general modification is to just decrease the range of motion required. So in the example of you're teaching warrior one and you have people reaching up to the sky, you cue them to do that and you see uh, a handful of people who can't straighten their arms all the way in full shoulder flexion, you could just generally throw out to the class another suggestion being, if you're having a hard time straightening your arms, take cactus arms instead, or bring your hands to your heart, or uh, reach your arms out in front of you. You know, there are basically in all of those modifications, what they all share is less range of motion required by the shoulder joint. Let's take another example of upward dog. Let's say you're teaching upward dog and you notice there are a number of people who either look uncomfortable, you interpret that maybe they, they are uncomfortable, um, something along those lines. Or maybe you anticipate that there will be some students who have a challenge with the uh, lumbar spine extension required by a kind of a vigorous full-blown upward dog. You could simply just say, come into upward dog, straighten your arms, press away from the floor, or if you prefer, bend your elbows slightly. So when you bend your elbows slightly versus taking up dog with completely straight arms, you're essentially decreasing the range of motion requirement, particularly, particularly in the lumbar spine area for extension. And when you decrease that range of motion requirement, the person typically will be able to access the pose better. Uh, the same thing would happen for, let's say you were teaching some kind of squat, sometimes a, some kind of malasana, goddess, any of those type poses. The deeper you go, the more external rotation is required by, by the hips, both hips, bilateral uh, external rotation, hip 
external rotation. So if you don't have them sink as low, it won't require as much. Chair pose, the deeper you have people go in chair pose, the more knee flexion. Uh, knee flexion can tend to be a problem for people. You'll notice when they come into child's pose, people who have a hard time getting their hips connected to their heels. This is often a reflection of not problems with their hips, but problems with their knees, because the deeper you come into child's pose, the more you come into knee flexion. And being able to have the back of your thigh touch the back of your calf in full knee flexion is sometimes problematic for people. So again, if you want to decrease the amount of range of motion required by the knee in the movement of knee flexion, you simply don't have them sit as low in chair. Or in the case of, of, um, of child's pose, you have them maybe put a block between their hips and their heels so they don't have to sink down all the way into a into a part of a portion of the range of motion where they may begin to feel pain. So the next uh, movement principle, number two, is stability is gained via a, wire, uh, via a wider base and stacking joints. So this is, a, again, a general movement principle that is really helpful for teachers to understand because it will give us a lot of different modifications that we can offer based upon this idea. So if you think about anatomical position being one where uh, you're standing with your feet at hip width distance, and then you think about mountain pose, Tadasana, where you're standing with your feet together, that's a perfect example of the difference between, the primary difference between anatomical position and Tadasana. It's the stacking of, I'm sorry, it's the width of the feet providing more stability. And the reason having your feet at hip width in Tadasana, which is essentially anatomical position, is more stable is because your hips are now over your heels. When you stand in mountain pose with your feet together, your hips are wider than your heels. And so that lack of alignment is what oftentimes creates <clears throat> a level of instability in students. And if you now transfer that general movement principle, and it's not really a movement principle because in this scenario, you're not moving, but um, you could call it a general biomechanical principle because it's more the biomechanics or the anatomy of the shape <clears throat> that involves stacking of the joints. And when you have that stacking of the joints, you have greater stability because things literally are lined excuse me, lined up. You have your hips over your knees, over your heels. <clears throat> and so looking for opportunities, not just in mountain pose, but also in something like warrior one, which is typically taught with a narrow base. Why not widen that base? Poses like chair where the feet are typically together. Why not widen that base to hip width? So that, that's another general example. What I like to say is wider is steadier, narrower is not. So that's, that's another way you can think about it. All right, so the next movement principle is the more I do the same thing over and over with poor alignment, the greater the risk of injury. So I, I phrase this as if it were me. What we can also do is look at it from the perspective of, if I'm the teacher, the more I teach in a way where I'm having people do something over and over again, if I am not cueing them correctly, cueing them clearly, and I'm allowing them to do things 
with poor alignment over and over again. The more, uh, what, how I wrote it out here was the greater the risk of injury. Now, let me just say right out of the gate, does this mean everyone's going to be injured? No. However, general movement principle supports this idea that when I have someone do something over and over again, if I'm unfamiliar with what the alignment should be, if I'm unfamiliar with the anatomy, if I let them kind of get away with a lot of poor alignment, it increases the risk for them, especially as I have them do this action over and over again. A key scenario where this comes into play is uh, moving from high to low push-up because that is something we do so much. And I really want you to think about how you teach moving from high to low push-up because if you teach it primarily by having people, by cueing the um, shapes. So something like come into plank, come into low plank, push up into upward dog, <clears throat> press back into downward dog. So in that scenario there, I gave literally no suggestions for what I wanted the person to do. I simply gave them the names of the shapes they were coming into, or I wanted them to, to do. And this, in my mind, is, is really a disservice to the student and oftentimes reflects that the teacher simply doesn't know how to cue. And so all the teacher has to fall back on in that scenario is simply calling out pose names. And what I would challenge you to do the next time you teach is use less pose names and use more action, alignment, and anatomy-based cues and see how that goes. Because quite frankly, in my opinion, people really don't need the name of the pose. What they really need is what you want them to do. And they need you to tell them what you want them to do in as simple and clear and understandable a way as possible. And so if you're a teacher out there <clears throat> who is teaching high to low push-up <clears throat> without giving action-based cues, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you're really, or without giving cues of any kind, and, and the way I classify cues is in one of four scenarios, action, alignment, anatomy, or somatic or feeling-based cues. If you're not giving specific cues, your students probably are making mistakes that you're missing out on. And you're missing out on an opportunity to teach them the correct way to do it. And when people do the same thing over and over again and begin to develop that habit, it's the same as if you've ever heard of repetitive injuries, things like carpal tunnel, uh, where somebody is doing uh, a particular action over and over again. Generally, carpal tunnel comes from typing a lot, um, holding the wrist in a particular way, having poor ergonomics at your desk. That kind of repetitive injury or that kind of injury is predicated on doing the same motion over and over again. So this is why as yoga teachers, anything we teach a lot of in our classes, we really wanna be sure we are teaching it correctly. And we really wanna be sure we understand the anatomy behind it, because if we don't, that is a huge red flag for something we need to study. All right, so the last general movement principle is the following. The clearer my cues, the greater chance they're understood and the less risk to students. So what this really highlights is the importance of teachers giving clear cues. And cueing 
is the main way that we are communicating with our students what we want them to do. And so the highlight on everything that we do as a teacher is really spotlighted on our cueing over anything else, over our sequencing, over our use of music, over any assisting we do, over any demoing we do. The cueing we do is the main way we are communicating with our students. And so as a result, what you say and how you say it is so critical to their ability to understand. And as a result, any kind of risk that is going to be involved in them practicing with you. And so be that as it may, you may say, well, that sounds totally obvious and I completely am on board with that. So now if that's the case, I want you to think about what frameworks are you using for cues or are you just going out and repeating what somebody taught you to say? Or are you going out and having that experience of, knowing all this stuff or thinking you know all this stuff and, and just kind of regurgitating it in kind of a flood of information to your students. You know, one thing I always like to do is switch positions with my students and think about if I were a student hearing my cue, how would that land on me? Or if I were a student going to class, what would I want from a teacher? I would, you know, so I'll just share a little bit. I would want a teacher to be clear and concise, give me space and silence to breathe and to connect to myself. You know, those are some things that come to my mind. What I wouldn't want a teacher to do is overshare in terms of action cues, speak a lot in a very kind of roundabout way. I would much prefer a teacher who gets right to what they want me to do because we only have limited time in every pose. So wouldn't we want to maximize the time that we are in a pose by sharing, or let's switch it now, the time that they, the students are in a pose by having you share exactly what you want them to do. And so that's why when it comes to things like cueing to breath, or using even the name of the pose, yes, I said it, using even the name of the pose, both of those things may be superfluous. They may be additive without any real um, cumulative benefit to the student. You know, your students are going to be breathing whether or not you tell them to. Cueing to breath from the perspective of sharing with them when they should be inhaling and when they should be exhaling, while a wonderful goal, you know, for most teachers is just going to take up real estate in the time frame that you have that would be better served. Your students would be better served if you would just let them breathe as they're breathing and tell them what you want them to do in as understandable a way as possible. Now, I will just make one little note. If you're feeling like you're doing your best and you're just not able to really hone in your cues, I want to offer you an opportunity to listen to the free workshop I did last week all around effective cues, how to give effective cues as a yoga teacher. I go into a full explanation of the four kinds of cues I just shared and several different templates for how you can share cues. And templates are a really powerful way for you as a teacher to organize your thoughts so that you're not just kind of going all over the place. And this will not only increase your confidence, it'll increase the comprehension your students have. So if you would like to listen to that free workshop, I'll include it as a link 
uh, to the show notes that you can access if you check out this podcast episode on my website. A quicker way to get it, though, is just DM me on Instagram. All right, so those were our four general movement principles. So what I want to do before I go into the quick presentation on key bones and joints is I want to tell you a little bit about my practice portal. This is something I built during the pandemic so that people would have a resource for practice. And then I expanded it significantly and I added a section on meditation. I added a section on reviewing research that was pertinent to yoga. I added a journaling exercise section. So it's really a full-blown practice portal. You can access classes categorized by different um, types of practice. I've got a number of really unique specialty practices in there, including a practice where you never have to be on your hands or arms for someone who might have limitations in shoulder movement or might have wrist pain. I have an entire practice on balancing. I've got a number of different practices on different anatomical themes. So I want to tell you, if you're a yoga teacher and you're looking for ideas for sequencing, or you're looking to learn anatomy, me in a very experiential way, rather than reading a book. This is really, really an amazing resource for you. I've organized it with an extreme amount of detail and care, and it's really a curated site where things are very specific and intentional and really geared not only for student practice, so you could use this for your practice, but also geared to the yoga teacher who is learning anatomy and is looking for a resource to really um, show them how does this all play out when it actually comes down to teaching the yoga. Now, I am by no means saying my way is the right way, but I'm simply saying in your journey to learn anatomy, it's really helpful if you can actually see how things all play out in one suggested way. And that's, that's what this becomes. The other thing I added to the practice portal is a healthy rewards program. So every month, if you complete six sessions, you get a free wellness themed gift. So for anybody who enrolls in the practice portal this week only, I'm going to send you a free set of myofascial release balls because several of the practices include learning about MFR. And so I'll send you an MFR set and that'll get you well on your way. I'll send you a really good one. And um, the good news is that it's a really quick investment. It's just $10.99 a month to enroll in the practice portal. I add new sequences every month to the portal. So it's a living, breathing membership. And you've got the learning rewards, I'm sorry, the um, healthy rewards program to keep you motivated and keep you on track. I am currently myself in a mode where I'm doing yoga every single day, every day of January, every day of February, except for maybe two. And I'm already in March every day, at least 20 minutes of practice a day. So I would really, really encourage you. This is a tool that you can use to help build a daily practice as well as learn some anatomy in action. So to subscribe to the Bare Bones Yoga Practice Portal, you can go to my website. It's right on the homepage. You can check out the show notes for this episode. The link is there or you can DM me on Instagram. Again, if you enroll this week as a subscriber, as a member to the practice portal, you'll get that free myofascial release set that I will send you. All right, so what I wanna do now is I wanna go over to my PowerPoint and I'm gonna take a look at the first part of a presentation. And over the next couple episodes, I'm gonna 
go through the other portions of this, which get into muscles and we'll chunk the muscles out into muscles of the upper body and muscles of the lower body. However, I wanted to start out with just some general concepts around key bones and joints. So the first thing to start with is that there is a certain number of bones in the body. There's 206 bones in the body in total. And we're going to start by just doing a, a quick examination of the spine. So the spine itself uh, is divided into three, well, you could really even say five sections. So you first, you've got, I'm actually going to change my view here as I'm looking at my own presentation. Uh, normal. Okay. So first you've got your vertebrae itself. So the vertebrae are the bones that comprise the spine. And you may say, well, duh, Karen, I know that. <laughs> so if this is all, you know, familiar information to you, great. Uh, if not, you know, let's just kind of get our vernacular down. So the vertebrae are the bones that make the spine, comprise the spine. And there are several different pieces or parts to the vertebrae. You've got your vertebral body, you've got your transverse processes, which are the little like wing-like pieces that stick out on the sides. You've got the spinous process on the back and you can even feel the spinous processes of your lumbar vertebrae. If you palpate your lower spine right around where your the top of your pelvis is, you'll kind of feel those little knobby things. Now, when you look at uh, the vertebra in the spine in between every vertebra, of course, is a disc, you know, and this is, you know, kind of in the common vernacular, people refer to, oh, a disc, oh, I have a slip disc, I have a herniated disc. I mean, back problems are huge in the United States, very, very prevalent. And I think that's why, you know, this part of the anatomy is more commonly known, even though people don't often literally know what's going on there, they're familiar with the terms. So here we are talking about vertebrae, we're talking about the discs in between the vertebrae. So getting a little bit into the weeds here, when we look at the disc itself, it has an outer portion, which is called an, uh, an annulus fibrosis, and it's got an inner portion, which is called the nucleus pulposus. The annulus fibrosis is exactly what it sounds. It's a fibrous outer shell. And then the nucleus pulposus is exactly what it sounds. It's kind of, I don't know if it's pulpy, but it's definitely softer than the, um, than the outer fibrous part. And what that allows us to do is move. If we literally had bones stacked upon one another, or we just had a bunch of bones stacked upon one another with a fibrous disc, we wouldn't get a lot of movement, but we don't have that. We have a softer part surrounded by a harder part in between bones in one big stack. So one long line. And so that allows us to actually move. Now, this is a good thing, right? We obviously want movement as humans. However, it has implications for movement. And this is where we get into another general movement principle. As we're moving around, the little uh, softer part of that disc is moving around as well. If we're standing up tall in mountain pose, all of our spinal discs are aligned in their natural positioning, as long as we don't have any clinical condition. And the middle portion of that disc, that softer part, that nucleus pulposus is in the center of every disc. However, if we were to bow forward as in ragdoll, our vertebrae would pinch together on the anterior portion in the front towards our belly side. And the um, nucleus pulposus, pulposus would push towards the back posteriorly. 
If we were to do a standing back bend, our vertebrae would pinch on the posterior portion and the nucleus pulposus would push forward. If we, would, if we were to be in mountain pose and then lean to the left or lean to the right, our vertebrae would pinch on the right or left, depending on what side we were leaning towards, and the nucleus pulposus would shove to the opposite side. So again, this is just how the body is made. This is how things move. This is how they are meant to move. However, this brings up a general movement principle that I referred to earlier, which is the more we do something in a, the, the more frequently we do something over time, it can lead to problems. And this is essentially the basis for which people often have um, injuries. Think of a golfer, um, think of actually think of Tiger Woods, not of course in his most recent um, injury where as a result of the car accident, but prior to that, he has a very well-known long history of back surgeries. This is a perfect example of the impact on the lumbar spine in particular in an athlete who's constantly doing a planting and twisting motion. That constant, constant, I mean, think of how many times Tiger Woods in his life has swung a golf club and how many times the body has been brought through that movement and how many times his spinal discs have been taken from one position where everything is centered in a line when he's standing over the ball to coming into a golf swing where he's twisting that rotational movement and thus the movement of the softer part of the disc over to if he is standing over the ball and he's holding the club and he's swinging, he's right-handed as a player, the disc would be moving to the, the soft part of the disc would be moving to the right in his body as he twists. And over time, that constant movement essentially creates a scenario where, you know, in him, I believe the scenario was the um, nucleus pulposus was impinging on a nerve because it actually began to break through the annulus annulus fibrosis. And the reason I know this is because two days before his, or actually one day before his accident, he was interviewed by Jim Nance uh, at the memorial, which was the tournament. Anyway, it's a whole story, but he was on TV and he was literally saying he's, you know, whatever, six weeks post-surgery. And he was waiting for the results of the MRI that potentially would indicate that the annulus fibrosis was healed up. And so as soon as I heard him, it was so cool to actually hear him refer to the annulus fibrosis on national television, on a golf, on, on, on the interview with Jim Nance there. Um, what that said to me was the nature of his injury has to do with impingement of nucleus pulposus on annulus fibrosis, and then subsequently on a nerve. This can be an incredibly painful situation for people. And, you know, the treatment surgically is, I don't know all the details, but somehow I suppose to kind of seal up that, that impingement so that the, um, the inner part of the disc is not impinging on the nerve and maybe even to do some kind of surgical um, resolution to the uh, fibrous part of the disc that's been, um, uh, breached. The other thing that Tiger has in particular is he has rods in his spine, which is amazing when you think about the body's capacity to still twist and still even not 
let alone play golf, just walk around without pain after you've had uh, rods inserted. He, he has had that in his past uh, surgeries that he's had. And this is again, a testament to the muscles are malleable and the muscles are capable of regenerating muscle fibers are the, the muscles have the ability to uh, compensate for joints that are compromised. And so a, a, a significant approach in rehabilitation is to leverage that ability when joints are compromised. That's one of the hallmarks of how you address knee injuries by working with the muscles above and below the knee to compensate for a joint that's been injured. So all of that points to, for us as yoga teachers, really examining how often are we having people fold forward, stand up, bend to the side, you know, and I think in a general yoga practice, you'd probably say, well, quite a lot. This again means then that your cues and your understanding anatomy, your understanding of anatomy needs to be on point. If you are standing up there in front of your class or teaching on the teaching uh, online, and you're unsure of what you're saying, that absolutely increases the risk for your students. Now, I am not here to scare you. I am simply here, you know, especially for those of you out there who know you don't know anatomy, but are unwilling uh, or uninterested or don't think it's a big deal to change that. You know, it really is a big deal. And it's not that your students are definitely going to get hurt. It's just a scenario where in order for you to provide the best experience for students with the least risk, that absolutely is dependent upon you knowing what you're talking about. It's just the basics. Um, it's it's uh, something that I experience a lot when I work with teachers who have tried to kind of figure it out on their own and it's not cutting it. So I would just definitely say, you know, in regards to the spine here, you know, take a look at your sequences, look at the kinds of cues you're using, especially when it comes to big movements of the spine, things like folding forward, lateral bending, like in things like half moon and side plank, and certainly back bends, things like camel, upward dog, wheel pose. All right, so moving on. So we get to uh, the different portions of the spine. We have the cervical spine, which is comprised of seven bones, starting with the atlas and the axis under the skull. So C1 through C7. We then move to the thoracic spine, T1 through T12, which is uh, also not only just the thoracic spine, but its connection to the ribs. And that whole uh, structure, the thoracic cage, is basically providing protection for the heart and the lungs and essentially becomes, you know, a, an area of the body that's really built for support and protection, not really built for a lot of mobility. So that's just something to keep in mind as a teacher. When we teach things like twists, we know we have some natural born resistance there in that part of the body. And that's why it's always good to do some good warm ups and to, again, have really good cueing for anything that involves twisting. In terms of the next part of the spine, we have the lumbar spine where we have five vertebrae there. And those vertebrae tend to be pretty big. They're at the base of the spine. They have to support a lot of the spine itself. Then we get to the sacrum, which sits between the two pelvic bones joined, um, you know, connected to the pelvic bones at the sacroiliac joint. And the sacrum is then followed up by the uh, coccyx or tailbone. Now, one thing about the spine to keep in mind is that the spine in its natural state has natural curves. If you take your hand right now and place it behind your neck, 
you'll feel the inward curve of your cervical spine. If you move your hand down a little bit, you'll feel the outward uh, curve of the thoracic. And then if you take your hand to your low back, you'll feel the natural inward curve of the lumbar spine. So those natural curves of the spine are always there. However, from person to person, they can be quite different. Some people have an exaggerated lumbar curve. And so that inward curve is what is called a lordosis. Some people have an exaggerated hunchback. That outward curve is what's called a kyphotic or kyphosis. Uh, and then we have people who are born with or who develop an S-curve, and that's known as scoliosis. So for this last part, I'm going to just quickly go over just key bones of the body. So you've got your collarbone, which is your clavicle. You have your scapula, which is your uh, shoulder blade. You've got your upper arm bone, your humerus, your lower arm bones, your radius and ulna. You've got your two pelvic bones and just key portions of the pelvis. You have your two pelvic bones. Each has at the base, your sitting bones. So the pelvis in general has sitting bones at the base. The sitting bones are known as your ischial tuberosities. The ridge of your pelvis is known as the iliac crest. And the high point of the iliac crest is what we call in yoga, your hip points. That's technically known as the anterior superior iliac spine. You've got the long bone of your leg, which is your femur, your kneecap, which is your patella, your tibia and your fibula, which are the lower leg bones. The, the tibia is on the medial aspect or the inside of the leg. Now, the final, final thing I'm going to share in this uh, podcast episode today is just a couple notes about joints. So as we said way at the beginning here, joint, a joint is an area of the body where two bones join. Muscles act upon joints to create movements of the limbs. Some joints have very little mobility as they're linked by cartilage, things like your sternoclavicular joint. And some joints are synovial surrounded by fluid like your knee joint. You've got ball and socket joints like your hip and your shoulder that provide you with a lot of mobility. You have other kinds of joints like the hinge of your elbow that don't provide you as much and the hinge of your knee that is a bit of a hybrid joint because it also allows a little bit of rotation. Think about when you do something like half pigeon, you're not just flexing your knee, you're also moving your shin to the side medially as you come into half pigeon with the bent knee. And so it's a bit of a hybrid joint. You have saddle joints in your hand, just a different type of joint. The shoulder joint is also known as the glenohumeral joint because it's literally the connection between the head of the humerus and the glenoid fossa of the scapula, so glenohumeral joint. You have your hip joint, which is a ball and socket as well as the shoulder. And the hip joint, a notable characteristic is that it is supported by a structure known as the labrum, which is sort of like a washer in a faucet. It essentially is like a ring around the joint itself that provides a little more depth and support so that the head of the femur sits in there nicely. You have your knee joint, which is your patella, which is where all the heads of your quadriceps insert. Your knee joint, as I said earlier, is a synovial joint surrounded by fluid and supported by a number of ligaments and tendons. So, oh, at this point, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop and we're gonna pick this presentation up um, when we get together in the next episode. This um, front end of this presentation is something I actually use 
in both my 200 level and 300 level um, uh, teacher training. I, I don't do 200 and 300 hour trainings in full. I'm often uh, partnering with studios who have me do the uh, anatomy portion. And this is literally the presentation that I give. So it's a really good way to build your baseline understanding of anatomy. And it'll give you a little bit of an introduction to how I present it. Um, this is also the same um, approach that I take in my own program, which is called the Blueprint Learning Program. So if you're out there, you've taken a 200 hour, maybe you've even taken a 300 hour, you're still feeling like, oh man, I just don't know anatomy. I want you to get on the wait list for my program. Go to my website, barebonesyoga.com. You'll see the link is right there. You can get on the wait list for the Blueprint Learning Program. And the next time I open enrollment, you'll be the first to know you can evaluate the opportunity. So that's it for today. The next time we chat, I will be um, here with my new dog, Coco. I can't wait to tell you about it. And I also want to remind you, take a look at the uh, practice portal right there on the homepage. Consider enrolling this week in that. You'll get that free MFR set. And then you can also learn anatomy kind of in practice and um, also you know, potentially begin a myofascial process, uh, practice, which is really, really good for your body. And if you have any questions about any of this, just shoot me a direct message right on Instagram. So thank you so much for listening today. Thank you for your time. If you're still here listening, I want to give you just a, a virtual, huge virtual hug uh, for staying focused, for putting this time in to increasing your knowledge of anatomy. I'll see you next week. Have a great week. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and I just want to remind you, if you would like to get on the wait list for my two premier programs, the Blueprint Learning Program and my mentorship program, all you need to do is visit my website, barebonesyoga.com, and the links to get on the wait list for both of these programs are right on the homepage. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.